You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. Today my guest is Jose Perez Troika of PerezScope.com and the Instagram account of the same name. Jose grew up in Switzerland. He now lives in Malaysia. And Jose is a self-described forensic investigator of watches. Uh, welcome, Jose. Hello, Mr. Adams. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you and I have had... Well, we've been we've been talking for a long time. We actually realized this may be our actual first conversation, even though I feel like I know you very, very well. It's kind of interesting that for years we've sort of done our thing with the watch industry connecting us. And it's it's interesting how many people we have met through our lives that we never would have met because of watches. You know what I mean? That's right, yeah. I remember you were actually the first uh, major watch blog to uh, get interested in, in what I do. That was in March 2016, so uh, more than five years ago. Now, I think one of the reasons that I really like what you do, and I've seen this from a few people like yourself that actually grew up in Switzerland and have an interest in the watch industry, is you had almost um, you had an activist perspective, which was sort of attacking some of the big guys, but for the purpose of justice. And, you know, I have a legal background, and I think I always sort of admired this. So I'm going to explain to people a little bit about what you would do. Um, one example of what Jose does is there'll be a watch that is supposedly this one-of-a-kind vintage watch sold at auction, and the auction details will describe some history and some things like that. And Jose will look at this and be like, you know what, something doesn't look right here. So you will go and you will investigate to find the re real details of what, of what this watch is, or at the very least, disprove what they say it is, ostensibly so that they can't charge as much as they're trying to charge. But your focus is you don't want them to be a liar. Would you say that that more or less describes your, your, um, your intentions and your motivations? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, in, in the first place, I think it's it's about fairness towards you know the the buyer. I think it's it's uh, it's important that that the, you know the collectors and and watch enthusiasts as a whole have have uh, you know they they should be treated fairly. And uh, I think I think someone uh, who you know I happen to to have this this uh, how to say you can call it talent or whatever. I just have an, enough time to investigate uh, these things. So I think it's, it's, it's a nice thing to, to just uh, use this uh, for, for the good of, of collectors. I want to give a little bit more context because there's so many details I want to discuss and questions and, and stories I want you to, to, to discuss. But I want to talk more about the context. Over the last several years especially, watch auction houses and similar types of retail institutions have really kind of exploded. Not only the ones that existed have gotten bigger, but there's been a lot, lot more of them. And this idea of selling these old vintage watches, and today it's just, you know, modern pre-owned watches, became almost like a trend. And it got almost out of hand. In fact, I would argue that it got quite out of hand, where all these different auction houses all the time were finding all these 
very important watches, these historic watches, and they would paint all these pictures about who owned them and all these romantic things. And it was completely unchecked. You know, they were selling these almost like they were financial instruments in an un unregulated way, no systems of checks or balances, completely anonymous bidding, all this stuff that was, you know, making it very clear that a lot of unethical behavior could come in. And so few people have ever stood up to them, you know, the, with, with being like, oh, well, you know, they're making money and people are making money and it's fine because you're just taking money from rich people and they can afford it. But that still doesn't really make it right. And I don't think that, that that makes it okay. And so would you agree that there's a sort of powerful constituency of watch sales that doesn't really have too many people to check them and what they do? Uh, yeah, you are right about this. Uh, I think I think you know the thing is that that you know the the the, the old school collectors, the the long time collectors, um, they all speak among each other. So when 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 a questionable watch comes up for auction, they will talk to each other among themselves. And uh, if a watch is all right, they will say so. And if a watch is not okay, they will talk to each other, and and then they will avoid this watch. But it's just this small circle of collectors who have this knowledge, right? So yeah. um, newbies in in this in this uh, you know watch collecting world can fall for a watch that is not not uh, you know not not all right. But in the old days, it was like you know there there was no one out there who would make this public. So the knowledge was there, but uh, they would just keep it you know between them and. Uh, when I came along, you know, I didn't have connect uh, contacts to this to this uh, collectors or or whatever. Um, what I did is I, I I researched this from 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 scratch, meaning I started you know collecting data. I, I created a database, and and so you know the more data I I was able to collect, the more. I saw through what is what is good and and what is not so good, and um, yeah, that that's how everything came about. Let's try to put things in financial context because I think it's important to ask yourself if you lie about the provenance of a watch or who made it or when it was made or all these different types of things. This can change the value of something by tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars. So maybe you could describe what's at stake when a watch is being passed off as something that's not in an auction context. Okay, I can give you a very specific um, uh, example here. There was once uh, a vintage Panerai 3646 with, uh, with a matriculation number on the case spec that was uh, probably used by Decima Mas, um, um, manned torpedo uh, pilots. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this watch was, um, was like highly regarded in, in the, in the Panerai, in the vintage Panerai collecting world. And when I looked at that watch, I always had the feeling like, you know, the, 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 the dial was somehow crooked. I mean, you know, like, like something, something was was somehow not all right. So I started researching this watch, and and it turned out that the watch um, had received like a new dial, and that, that the original dial was a was one of the earliest uh, vintage Panerai dials that were made uh, from like some plastic discs, and they were like prone to to warp, 
And, you know, depending on how, how strong they warped, it could be that uh, the hands could not move anymore. So the whole, <laughs> so the whole uh, you know, function of the watch was compromised. So anyway, um, so this dial, the original dial that was warped was, was replaced with a, with, a, with a Kampfschwimmer dial. Kampfschwimmer is uh, are the anonymous uh, Panerai dials, 3, 6, 9, 12 dials. And, um, but the engravings on that dial were fake. So and they were like engraved. The, the, the engraver they they didn't know how to engrave it properly, probably, and and somehow the engravings were crooked. So they installed the dial in a very weird way that the engravings were were like you know aligned aligned oh, with, with with the crown, but but then the the rest of the dial was crooked and it looked like always very weird. So I I researched this watch. And and I found all these all these details, and then I wrote an article about it, and uh, because it came it came I think uh, with Christie's uh, it came to to auction with Christie's, and I think like two or three years before it was auctioned off already, and it fetched like one hundred sixty thousand dollars U.S. dollars, okay. and then after my article, I think it fetched like thirty seven thousand Swiss francs. So whoever whoever put that watch at auction lost like more than 100,000 US dollars on it. And it was... It was like 60, 70% of the value. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's just amazing, right? Now, that's a, that's a big deal. And I think one thing that is important to say is how common is this? You know, you have tons and tons of examples that you've shared over the years, you've written about of these watches have been doctored or stories have been made up. How big of a problem is this in the sort of vintage watch community? Well, I think it, it depends It depends on uh, what kind of watches we are talking about. You know, uh, if, if we are talking about like, you know, like uh, military used watches with, with matriculation numbers and, you know, details like that, I think watches like this should, should like remain completely original because the moment you change something on a watch like this, you, you, you just take the, you, you somehow destroy the soul of the watch, right? Um, I think, I think you, we, need to, we need to make a differentiation here between, between this, this, you know, like, like issued watches that in my opinion should remain like as untouched as possible and then we also have like you know like common watches like you know Rolex GMTs or or Submariners and stuff like that and what is often done is that you know if 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 you find a watch with a perfect case right and uh, and not not so perfect dial what what dealers often do is they 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 take a perfect dial and install it in a perfect case so that they can create a perfect watch right so there you can say I mean, where do you draw the line? You know, I mean, it's 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 not it's not that important of a watch, in my opinion, to say you cannot do that, right? I think I think that's like that's like if if you look if you look for instance at at uh, vintage cars, you also you know you want to keep a vintage car as as original as possible, but you also want to keep it running. So in order to keep it, for to keep it running, you need to. You know, you need to change and replace parts, right? And I think it always depends on what kind of watch uh, we are talking about. But it is, it is uh, to come back to your question, it is actually quite, quite common to do that. So let, let's let's frame this issue as coming in from two perspectives. Because on the one hand, 
you have this issue where collectors want things to be original. It's not that replacement parts are bad, but there's something that enhances collectability about being something original. And what collectors care about is that things are accurately identified as original, meaning if a part is original, it should say so. If it's been replacement, that's maybe fine, but you should say it. On the other hand, we have this issue of lying during the sale of a product. And we have auction houses or other salespeople that, that knowingly or unknowingly will not tell the truth about something. And that lie could have you know, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars as, as an outcome. So you know, which of those is most important for you? Because for me, the lying is the problem because you're right. When it comes to talking about how important is originality, it's, it's a spectrum and it's a slippery slope because yeah. any machine that you use is going to naturally have replacement parts over time. That's right. Um, I had many discussions with uh, with dealers and also with some auction houses about about this, you know, these things. And um, you know, in 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 many cases, it's like this: uh, auction houses, they you know they they have consigners who consign uh, their their pieces to the auction house. And of course, I mean, everybody assumes that auction houses have the ultimate top experts working for them and they know everything and you know they but but i think that's that's just that's just not the way it is uh, i think they certainly not. come across that way don't they they really sound like they're museums or something like that when in reality they're basically fancy flea markets well i mean you know they have they have of course knowledge but i think it's it's in a broader spectrum you know i, I think they 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 know a lot about you know all kinds of different watches but when it comes to very specific knowledge on one model, uh, you know, one particular model, uh, that's that's something else. I think in, in in many cases, some of the auction houses, when it comes to particular models, they will you consult with with uh, you know people out there who are known to to know to know something about this uh, this topic. But you know, I think I think we we need to differentiate there, you know, between between the people who actually. Uh, auction the watches and the people who actually consign the watches to the auction houses because in many cases things are done to watches that the auction house doesn't doesn't know about so basically either a collector or a dealer will consign a watch where he did something but of course he won't talk about it right what he did to the watch and and the yeah. auction houses uh, will probably you know in in good faith um, think that the watch is all right, and and you know depending on who this dealer or the collector is, you know there's also like VIP people among them, uh, and the more VIP someone is, the less the auction house will will research and see whether with with that watch is everything is okay. So let's let's go back here to this sort of idea of an auction house because these are institutions that have had this reputation or try to have this reputation. It's very buttoned up. There's you know. Uh, a man in a suit with gloves. Is, is he some type of an academic or a museum person? He's, he's acting very serious about this, is that you're holding some type of treasure, and there's all this pomp and circumstance, and this way of speaking, and this sort of strange ritual around selling it. You know, it, it lends itself to trying to suggest authority. It lends itself to trying to show that they're, they're trying to curate history and really trying to do something which is important for culture, when at the end of the day, it's still just a sales and marketing institution trying to take something, boost its value, sell it for as much as possible, 
and do it as many times as possible. And I and and I really think that that there isn't enough scrutiny. And you know me. I mean, I I have been like yourself among the few people to really call out a lot of these auctions on their behavior. I do it in a little bit different way than you. You focus more on specific auction lots. I talk more about some of the the logical problems that come out come come with trusting them. Yeah. Who else is is sort of on the side of telling everyone, yes, these might be interesting businesses, but they are not to be trusted without a second opinion. You know, who else is, is, is fighting for that? I think there are several people uh, at the moment. I mean, I think, um, you know, on every brand has, uh, has, uh, has its top expert. And uh, I think those people are interested that uh, the, watches, the watches that are sold at auction and also among dealers that uh, that those watches are are correct and uh, you know uh, sold sold and described in a fair way. So let's talk more about the specific process of what you do. And you're a very visual person. Uh, I think you, by by training you are uh, essentially a graphic designer and also in the world of marketing and advertising, right? That's right. I studied architecture and then uh, somehow at some point I moved into advertising with uh, focus digital communications. What about those skills helped you do what you do with watches? And I want to talk a little bit more about growing up in Switzerland shortly, but what are some of the skills that you use that allow you to do what you do? Because it is a very visual process, isn't it? That's right. I mean, you know, uh, w- when I write an article about about a watch, let's say that that is is not okay, that something is wrong with it, then you know, it's it's about it's about you know showing evidence that what you are saying is actually correct, right? So I think I think those skills that I acquired uh, over the years uh, in graphic design helped me because I am able to to create comparisons. And and know exactly, you know, on what details to focus to explain what what I am actually talking about, and um, I think it's it's very important for me uh, not you know that people don't don't simply say oh Periscope you know he's uh, you know he has uh, this reputation and he knows everything. No, I don't want that. I want people to think for themselves. I I want people to to look at my article. And, and look at the comparisons that I make so that they can understand, you know, the, the, the way of thought and, and, and that what I'm, what I'm actually want to point out is not just, you know, just an opinion that I, you know, I'm just saying something. I want them to understand that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a process and that they actually can make up their own mind by, by looking at, at the details. I have to comment there because it's such an important point you make because it's in contrast to so much else of what you find and I call it luxury media. There's a lot of telling and not showing. What what I try to do and what you also try to do is we try to show people things. This is what I see. This is what I think. And if you agree with me, maybe you'll come to the same conclusion, but you're free not to. Now, that's what we do because that's sort of a very egalitarian um, I'd like to think elevated way of disseminating information and opinions, but we know that that's not common. That requires a, a very sophisticated reader that thinks carefully uh, about what you're saying, tracks what you've been saying over time, and sort of understands the conversation and the context. Whereas a lot, and I mean a lot of luxury media nowadays, and again, you know it, 
is really just there to tell people things. This is the best. This is the oldest. This is the coolest. This is the most expensive. This is the first. There's a lot of telling versus trying to show. And that takes a lot out of the hobby, doesn't it? I think it does, yeah. I mean, you know, f what I see from, from, from the mainstream watch media, if you want to call it this way, is, is that they, you know, they maybe started, started off as, 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 a, as enthousi enthusiast platforms, but they have evolved into, into some, some, you know, like extended, extended arm of the marketing units of watch brands. And um, I, think, I think they should be much more critical towards the products they advertise because it, it is more or less advertising something. It's, it's not really like, you know, like testing something, you know, and explaining to, to, uh, to, to interested parties you know, why this is like this and uh, why is it better or, or worse than, than on, on another watch. It's just, it has become like, you know, it's, it's all about hyping up things, right? Yeah, there's, I mean, that goes into a whole big discussion. Let's talk a little bit about you being Swiss because it is, it is said from the outside, uh, especially people that are running Swiss watch brands, they don't have a very thick skin. This is the exact term that another journalist used um, with me on a different podcast recently. They said, they don't have a very thick skin, maybe compared to like a, a car industry CEO or manager or a different industry, tech industry or whatever. Watch brand CEOs and managers tend to be very sensitive and very have a very thin skin, uh, tend to take things, maybe go a little bit overblown. So there tends to be a disinterest in criticizing them by a lot of the media. Uh, we, we do our best to, to cross a, a thin line, but we definitely call them out when possible. But you being from Switzerland, you know, is it different? Do you feel more compelled to be polite or because it's sort of your own people, your own place, you feel like it's your family, you, you feel more comfortable saying things to them that maybe people from the outside wouldn't? You know what I mean? Um, not sure, not sure. I, th I think I'm, uh, I, just, I just feel comfortable to say, you know, to, to, to say what I think. Uh, it's not necessarily now, you know, specific to the, to the watch industry, but I, I think I just, you know, I just think more people should should actually express their opinions. But how did how did you how did this come about? Because you know, you grew up in a country that is this is not one of the the cultural hallmarks of saying what you think. You obviously have it, but your your country people, it's it's not a place where this is one of the known behaviors. If that's yeah, well, that, that must be that must be my. Uh, my Spanish heritage. heritage. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. So. Yeah. I'm. Uh, you know. I am of Spanish descent, but uh, born in Switzerland and uh, and raised there uh, in the German part, as you can tell by my accent. And yeah, uh, of course, of course. And yeah, I mean, of course, uh, there's a way how how Swiss people are like. How to say? You know, they they like to. They like to um, observe things from a certain distance, but they like to keep it that way. They don't want to go too close. And I think maybe maybe that's you know part of my Spanish heritage. You know where I can combine both things. You know observing things from a distance, but at the same time just uh, you know getting in touch and uh, and expressing what I think. Now let's talk about some of the watches <clears throat> that you've talked about because we've talked a lot about what you do in general. Let's talk more specifically about certain watches and, and different situations. How often do you get to observe a watch 
in your hand uh, for a, from a forensic perspective to try to determine if it is what it says it is versus having to do this from afar using pictures and things like that? Yes. Well, I, uh, I used to um, travel to, to Geneva and to Hong Kong uh, a lot uh, just to, um, you know, to attend the auctions and, uh, and see the watches in real life. Uh, I don't know. Have you been to auction houses? You know, I have been emotions. a sub, yeah, a little bit. Okay. I, I try to look. I, it's not my favorite place to go. I find I find it kind of creepy, to be honest. The sort of the weird, <laughs> like the people that work there. It's like there's all this stuff that they want to say that they don't, and everybody there looks like they have this own weird internal dialogue that no one's saying, and it makes me super uncomfortable. <laughs> see, all right. So, so there's there's a uh, you know that before the auction, you can you can actually go there and you can uh, you can uh, you know you can check the watches, right? Um, yeah, they always have a have a watchmaker there, so you can you know you can say I want to see this this few watches, and then you can you can send it to the watchmaker. He will open it. Then you can you know check the details and everything. So um, I mean that that helps, and and it's a different thing to to actually look at watches in real life in three D, having them in your hand, and you know looking at them. You know, by turning them into the light, and and you know, see the see how the how the 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 dial, for instance, changes and stuff like that. Uh, um, and it's a different thing to to look at watches on pictures, of course. Um, I just had recently uh, one one good example where where someone sent me a picture and said that the auction house had like restored the dial because. You know the the watch had been sold like like two years earlier from by another auction house, and then it came to this auction house, and then it seemed like like the dial was perfect, but in the auction in the previous auction it seemed like there were some missing, uh, you know, from the print was missing some some uh, some color, some some details. Right, right, and, right. And, and this was really a mystery. I looked at the watch for a long time, and then at some point. You know, on pictures, I didn't see the watch in real. And um, I found a picture from the previous auction that showed the watch in a, like in a three-quarter perspective, you know, from the side. And, right. And you could see the dial through a different angle through the crystal. And you could see that exactly those parts that looked like they were damaged in the front view, in the, in the three-quarter view, they were absolutely spot on and perfect. So what happened? Huh. What happened there? The crystal was badly scratched, and it caused these visual distortions where you thought, "Hey, you know, uh, there, there's something missing. Something in the, the, the dial is damaged." And then in the, oh, in, the in the most recent auction, they changed the crystal because it was so badly badly scratched. And then, of course, the dial looked perfect. So this person was completely, you know. They really thought they had the the dial had been reprinted, but it wasn't. Now, and and this have, is this this is like the perfect perfect example for 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 this for for the how different it is to see a watch in real and just check watches on pictures. It's just a different different thing. It's hard. It's hard, and you have to be very clever because you have to say what what am I actually looking at now. Once auction houses recognized that you and maybe others were starting to do this and use these pictures over a period of time to, to see what's going, have they changed what they've done? Have they made it more difficult or is this just something that they can't control and they actually maybe appreciate that you do this because um, 
it prevents them from you know being embarrassed as often. Like, do you, you find them being more hostile to what you do or quietly appreciative that someone's doing it? It depends on the auction house. Actually, my okay. experience, <laughs> my experience for the past, let's say, like maybe three years. You know, when 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 people started realizing that my articles have 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 an effect that it's not just someone writing something, but that collectors are actually reading it. And oh, depend, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. De- and depending on, on uh, you know, on, on, on how I assess a watch, that watch will actually uh, will either perform perfectly or, or it won't. And so auction houses, certain auction houses have become quite, you know, quite friendly with me. So um, whenever they have a, a, a watch at auction that I am interested in, I can reach out to them. And uh, they will provide detailed pictures, uh, you know, uh, really uh, movement, serial number engravings, all sorts of details. So they will happily provide that. And if I if I happen to see something that is wrong, I will tell them. Of course, I will not, you know, not do an article when you know it's it's about you know it's also about about you know cleaning up the whole thing, right? I mean, you don't necessarily want to expose someone if it's not necessary maybe that person made a mistake maybe that auction house just didn't know about you know about the the faults yeah you're you're being hired as an investigator beforehand they need to know the details before they can ask a bunch of money for something that's the responsible thing to do yeah so i i will tell them of course uh that that something is wrong with the watch and uh in most cases they will they will you know either change the description for instance in the uh, condition report you know, so that uh, actually collectors can can read more detailed, a more detailed, you know, view on on the condition of the watch, uh, or they will withdraw the watch depending on you know how uh, how severe the, the the faults are. But um, and what what about before the last you know several years? Because you you made it sound as though things are good now. What are some of the earlier experiences like? Well, you know, in in some you know in some cases, I didn't reach out. Of course, in the beginning, because I didn't have any contacts there. So, I mean, in the beginning, uh, I just I just wrote articles because I thought, you know, it, I, I was passionate about it, and um, and and I thought I want to share this information that I that I have with with as many people as possible. And of course, I didn't reach out to auction houses. I just wrote an article, and uh, in mo- you know, in many cases. It had it had some impact, and uh, you know, as soon as the auction houses realized that that my articles had uh, had impact on, on on the value of watches, of course, they became they 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 also some of them reached out. You know, they 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 tried to understand also what you know what I am all about, what you know what my goals are, why am I am doing this? Of course, they wanted to understand. So yeah, I mean, what did you what did you say? What did you say are your goals when they ask you, Jose? Why are you doing this? Why are you what doing did you this? Say? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, why am I doing this? I I am doing this first of all because I'm I, I love watches. I am passionate about it, and uh, uh, I just I, you know I, I just don't think it's fair when people get ripped off. Um, you know, other people who are actually you know as passionate about watches as me. And then they they buy something that is uh, that is not correct or you know that is, has been tinkered uh, around with. So, I mean that's that's my main main objective: just help collectors uh, doing well well informed uh, investment decisions. Because you know 
depending on what kind of watch we are talking about, it, it can be an investment. And in, in, let's say, in like five years, that, that watch will have a certain percentage more value. Or if it turns out to be, you know, to be made up or, you know, or even fake, uh, the whole value is destroyed. And, you know, if someone didn't know about it, it's just, you know, that's just totally unfair. You know, I don't know how comfortable I am with the sort of strange side of the industry, which is is really about taking these tools and making them crazy, crazy items of value. This is different than the luxury watch industry. Luxury watch industry sells jewelry style, highly precision made watches that look like tools, but are really jewelry items and they charge a lot of money for it. We're talking about this practice of taking actual old tools, really amazing things, and creating this culture of value, valuing them such a crazy high amount, it becomes so, it's not democratic anymore. Very few people can enjoy them. And it's this weird manifestation of luxury. It's very, very different than sort of the, the, the rank and file watch. Do you sometimes feel that this sort of culture of, of selling these watches for a lot of money because of the internet and because of auctions has got too big, too fast, that it's sort of unsustainable, that the prices these have gone to, uh, are maybe too much to, to to maintain interest, or is this what they should be at? And these really are worth, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. And 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 this is correct. I think I think everything that is that is that is somehow special, you know, like uh, I mean, let's 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 say um, in mid twenty twenty, I, I did some really in depth research on on the earliest uh, single uh, sea dwellers uh, that are, may, uh, are are known as single red sea dwellers. Mm-hmm. And I was able to identify the very first valve prototype. I don't know if you know it, but, you know, the, the first sea dwellers were born without a valve. They were made, like, in, in, the, in the second quarter of 1967. And the, the helium release valve, for everyone that doesn't know what we're talking about, the helium release valve. Exactly. And uh, so, so the first sea dwellers were made in the second uh, quarter of 1967, but it was not until late 1967 that the idea for the helium release valve reached Rolex. Rolex didn't, didn't figure it out themselves. They received the idea from, uh, from, from C-Lab people, from uh, Bob Barth, actually, uh, a sea lab aquanaut uh, and, and uh, saturation diving pioneer. He uh, he came up came up with the idea to actually install like a mini, like a small uh, one way uh, helium release valve inside, you know, in in the case so that helium could uh, escape uh, after uh, during decompression from a from a prolonged saturation dive and. Um, so he talked to this guy T. Walker Lloyd, who was a who was a diver at the time, and so T. Walker Lloyd reached out to Rolex, and then Rolex, you know, heard I think for the first time about these issues that you know watches would uh, explode literally, like the, the yeah, crystal the crystal, would crystal would pop off, pop out exactly, and uh, so this was this this happened in nineteen in late nineteen sixty seven, so at the time. Uh, Rolex had no uh, opportunity to test the idea, but in in early 1968, this guy, Dr. Ralph Brower, who was a German-American uh, hyperbaric researcher, he went to uh, to Marseille to uh, to do some really awesome experiments with Comex. Comex was like coming up at the time, and um, 
they went like to 300 meters of depth in inside a, a hyperbaric chamber chamber in uh, in in Marseille. And uh, when Rolex heard about this experiment and that more uh, experiments were were basically planned, they quickly they quickly created this first prototype and reached out to Dr. Ralph Brower and gave it to him to test during during the the further tests. So you know. This watch has a different has a different uh, uh, case number range than the usual single red sea dwellers because it was made in 1968, whereas the others were made in 1967, right? So, and this watch was always a mystery. It was the only one with a 1.8 million case number range, and actually, it was it was auctioned off by the university where this guy used to be a professor, and when he died, he left everything to the university. So it has a very clear provenance, this watch. But, but nobody knew what this watch was all about. So I started researching and, you know, reading, like, old newspaper um, uh, articles, and, and somehow, at some point, I realized, hey, this is, like, the very first prototype that was made. So... Now this watch has a history. This watch has, is absolutely amazing, and and you know when it comes to value, I mean, how to value a watch like this, right? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't this, shouldn't shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't this watch be extremely valuable because of its history? Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blogged Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So this is so let's let's give some context here because again I I know what you're talking about but this is exactly why I love talking about these things it's so esoteric to most people so we're talking about Rolex and we're talking about one of their watches called the Sea Dweller and the Sweet Sea Dweller uh, was one of their you know dive watches they still make them today and it was involved in a lot of actual underwater testing and a lot of cool stuff and one of the key features of the early Sea Dwellers was this helium release valve which is this sort of funny vestigial element that's on a lot of watches today but it's it's really sort of part of um, the, the, the history of it. And a big question, as you said, is where does this helium release valve come from? And no one really knew exactly. And you you solved the problem of, of where it actually came from because this story didn't really exist. Well, actually, the, 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 the initial information of who came up with the idea for the, for the helium release valve came from Jake from uh, Rolex magazine. Um, right. Jake is like... You know he's absolutely amazing. The guy is a total legend, and he, you know, he has been in the game like for. I mean, when when did you did you start with your blog? 
Yeah, Jake and I started around the same time. We actually, I had Jake on an earlier episode of Superlative, so um, he's been on talking about stuff as well. So, uh, you know, totally agree with you that he's a very special person. But I'd say about a year or two after I started, I think he started. So it was, in, uh, again, I started in 2007. Okay, all right. So so Jake, uh, he interviewed Bob Barth. He interviewed Scott Carpenter, you know, the astronaut who turned Aquanaut. Um, yeah. He interviewed T. Walker Lloyd, the guy I talked before, the guy who reached out to Rolex, and then later he became the oceanographic uh, um, consultant for Rolex, and later some, you know, he had a major role in Rolex US, USA. Um, yeah. So he interviewed all these this guys, and it's absolutely amazing. He has uh, this podcast. Uh, unfortunately, they are not no longer online for some reason, but... Um, Jake sent them to me and that's that's like that's a treasure of information and it's just so amazing and it's actually Jake came 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 up with, with, right. with this that's information right. and and he actually forwarded the information to me and and I I you know I I took uh, I don't know how you how you call it you know there's there's a sport where you where you actually give someone the the like a, like a, what is it like the baton and then the other the other one uh, continues to run Oh yeah, yeah. Like it's a form of marathon running. Where yeah, exactly. You, yeah, you pa- exactly. Pa- pass the baton. Pass the baton. Pass the baton. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's what yeah. I did. You know, I just uh, I just took the baton and then went further. And does Rolex ever say thank you for this? Rolex isn't particularly communicative about these things. I mean, you've spent countless hours essentially doing work for Rolex, right? Well, I mean, Rolex uh, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, communicate in in public about things like this, right? I mean, it's uh, also when it comes to you know when it comes to you know the archives, you know they don't. It's it's very difficult to get to get information. So no, no, uh, yeah, no one from from Rolex reached out. Which is kind of funny because you you know you go to your website and you see Rolex, 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 and Rolex is is present a lot because so much of the sort of vintage watch enthusiast community focuses on Rolex. It's not the only brand that has a lot of historical facts about it, you know, working with important people, but Rolex is just a very popular brand. So, you know, you have a, a, a website, you know, dominated by, you know, Rolex and things related to Rolex. Even the early Panerai stuff is essentially a Rolex story as well. That's right. And and it's interesting because people might assume, oh, of course, this guy's got this really close relationship with Rolex. They must be pals. It's interesting to know that there are, are instances where, you know, for whatever reason, Rolex just says, you know, we're we're going to sort of stay quiet about this, even though I know that there's a lot of people at Rolex that really like what you do. And you probably know the same thing. Well, I, there are some rumors, yeah. Um, what, what I noticed, for instance, is that in their, um, you know, they, they updated their website. Um, I think it was like last year, late last year, and um, so they set the record straight on on some things that uh, that I came up with in my articles, and uh, that's some ah. sort of you know some sort of uh, uh, you know action and reaction, which is nice to see that they actually you know that they actually seem to read my stuff. Now let's talk about a different brand. Now Rolex tends to be, as you said pretty responsible. And if they have misinformation and you correct them, they tend to sort of quietly update it. You know, they do the right thing. Rolex actually is a big fan of setting the record straight. Panerai, on the other hand, you've had a very interesting sort of contentious history. And they've had a very contentious history with their own history, uh, of course. 
how would you describe the difference between how Panerai and Rolex might respond to you know some of the work that you do? I think the the biggest problem with Panerai is is you know their history and you know that they are aware that uh, you know the original Panerai watches were actually nothing but Rolex Oyster watches that at some point received an Italian dial. So <laughs> I, I think I think the biggest problem they have is how they were born, right? So right. And 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 somehow they they always try to you know to concoct some some weird some weird stories around that to to just not let people know how the original Panerai watches came about. You know they came about came you know the, they had this. They had this. Um, this uh, they spread this information that that basically Panerai watches used uh, um, Rolex movements, for instance. I mean, that was like you know. I, I remember you know learning about Panerai for the first time. I think that was like in 1998 when a coworker coworker came to me and and, and showed me like a Panerai on my browser, and um, I was totally amazed about it. And 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 he said, oh, you know they. The, the, the watches uh, were used uh, during the Second World War and they had Rolex movements and stuff like this. It was absolutely, you know, amazing information and it's some kind of a mystery and, you know, used by, by secret commandos and stuff like that. So they, they, ha- they really have, they really have a, a, a very, very interesting real history. Uh, but the problem is, I think, that they have this, this thing with, with Rolex that they are not confident about it, and 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 that they they came up with with all this this you know like fabricated information, and and I think they are like a little bit you know how how to say I mean there is it's it's a dilemma for them I think they 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 cannot move forward and say you know like, let's say oh let's let's start from scratch and let's uh, you know like check our history and then and, and, and inform people uh, about how it really came about. Uh, and somehow this other thing that they would just w- want to continue as if nothing happened, right? As, uh, as if people or a lot of people haven't learned what Panerai is really about. So what, what is Panerai really about? You know, it's a luxury company owned by Richemont with a good design, some cool history, some random things that aren't that sexy. You know, what, what should a brand like that be all about? You know, what, what in an ideal world could they do to maintain the sort of status they want today? Well, I think, you know, for, for me, for me as, as someone who, who loves to separate, uh, 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 how to say, uh, facts from fiction, uh, for me, it would be nice if if they would just accept their heritage, right? If they would just say, "Okay, we were born as a Rolex watch, but but you know we we evolved into something something else." Um, you know, basically the design we we are still using a lot of 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 that design is is still Rolex. So basically, you know what they are what they are doing is 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 you know it's more like a homage homage uh, uh, to to those watches used uh, in, in that period of time I think for me it would be it would be great if they would just you know accept accept <laughs> where, where, where they came from and they would communicate it I think I think it's a strength I don't think it's a weakness 
For them, I think they understand that as a weakness, but I think it's it's actually a strength if you can be confident about it. No, I, I agree. I mean, they should just basically say, once upon a time, Rolex and this you know guy in Italy worked together to make this cool thing, and it had this brief but really interesting history, and 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 that's that. Rolex, ironically, says nothing about Panerai ever. I mean, you know better than me, but. I've literally never heard Rolex ever even mention Panerai. Yeah, I think that that has to do with um, with the Second World War history, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think they have, a, they had a problem with with the Italians using their watches, but but then when when uh, you know when Italy was occupied after right. basically Italy uh, withdraw from 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 the Axis. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, made a peace agreement with the Allies. They were, you know, they were uh, immediately occupied by German forces, and and that's how the Germans got their hands on on Panerai watches. And I think that's I think that's a problem for Rolex because Rolex was basically born as a you know, you know, uh, Hans Wilsdorf was was uh, was uh, of German descent, but he he uh, moved to um, immigrated to. To, uh, to England to England at some point became a British citizen married uh, 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 his British wife and um, so he had a, he had a strong connection to to uh, to England and I think for him what happened during the Second World War that you know basically Nazis were running around with 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 his watches I think that that was a big problem for him. Yeah, no doubt. And and for others as well. And and Nazis and watches is a whole other podcast. My last question about Panerai has to do with why I think they're the most popular. And that actually is less about their history, but more about the design. I think that the, the design of a lot of the cases, the simplicity and boldness of the dials has a sporty sex appeal that is not unparalleled, but is unlike a lot, a lot of others. What was it about what was going on in the Panerai workshop in Italy at the time, you know, where, where did this nice design come from? Was this a fluke or was this sort of a function of a, of an instrument making industry that just happened to make nice stuff at the time? Well, I mean, are you, are you referring to, to the, to, to the crown protect, protecting device? Well, more the dials. Cause my understanding was, and you can correct me, but even the Rolex, you know, supplied movements and stuff like that, the dials were designed and made in Italy or is that wrong? Well, Rolex supplied complete watches not just movements or cases like it's often said. They basically supplied complete oh, watches. Oh, everything. Yeah. So Panerai didn't do anything, really? On the watch itself, no. They basically replaced the dial. So Rolex sent the watches to um, Florence with, with a transport dial. In most cases, it was just a very simple white dial, right? To okay. Pro- to protect the movement. And uh, the hands were were already installed and everything, so... So they sent complete watches like this to Florence, and then in Florence, Panerai would go open the watch, uh, remove the transport dial, and install their own. Uh, okay, so the, so it is their dials. dials. It is their, and, and would they they would design these dials because again, I think that there's a lot of beauty to their dials. I think yeah. that they it's a nice looking thing. So what was it about what Panerai was? It an accident they were nice because again, a lot of these instruments from this era do not look as visually attractive there's some there's a sex appeal to them that you, no no doubt you'll you'll agree is there that other instruments don't have 
So Panerai dials are, are in, indeed uh, very special. So Panerai didn't come up with the idea for, you know, for a sandwich dial, meaning like, you know, uh, different layers, you know, with, with cutouts and stuff like this. So this idea was right. actually created, I think, in, 19, in the early 1930s by Stern Frère in, uh, in, uh, in Switzerland. They basically, okay. they basically created the first s- sandwich dial with cutouts and they, they patented the idea. So, but Panerai took this idea further. What they did is, and, and this is really amazing because, you know, I mean, you know, we are talking about radium, right? Radium is highly radioactive and, and can be deadly if you ingest it. And, uh, you know, you will suffer before you die. And yeah. so, so Panerai was absolutely aware of the, of the you know, of, of, of the danger of, of radium. And what they did is they basically applied the radium deep inside the the sandwich dials and then they sealed the cutouts with with a raisin with some sort of plastic right so that the radium powder or or you know like dust or whatever could not you know could not get out of the dial so it was always like you know really properly sealed inside the dial and if you look at also like dials made for for other instruments let's say like for compasses or um, or uh, depth gorges, they are all done in the same way. So I think Panerai was very aware of, of of the dangers of of radium, and they tried to find a way how to basically keep that very dangerous uh, uh, material, uh, you know, in check. So I mean, Panerai dials are indeed very intricate. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, the open six and nine. I mean, that's not something that, that Panerai invented. That was, uh, you know, that, that's basically something that needs to be this way if you have a cutout, because otherwise that middle part would just fa- f- fall off, right? Um, okay, so that's interesting. So what you're saying is that there is a, a history of dial development that sort of accumulated into this, and this is what it was all coming to, and it just happened to be that, that Panerai was the one that put it all together in this particular way, in this particular size, for this particular purpose. That's right. Yeah, and you know, there, there's another there's another uh, side to this. Um, in in interviews with uh, with the Italian frogmen, it came out that they were actually they said that the Panerai dials were actually too bright. You know, because I mean, they were mostly operating, uh, you know, in, at night or at dawn. Too too bright, so it was like it was a problem. They were you could read them too easily. So no, the problem was that they could be spotted from the surface by sentinels. So you know, let's say you know if if they were going to attack like like some battleship, like like they did in Alexandria in Egypt, right? So you know, imagine this guy comes along with an instrument and with a with a watch like you know glowing you know underwater, and you can see that from from the surface. You know, depend because you also need to understand that this this uh, the the Italian frogmen from the Second World War, they operated at depth between like let's say like like ten meters and and maybe two meters of depth, right? And because they were using oxygen rebreathers, and oxygen becomes rapidly toxic below i think 12 meters so you can you can actually you know uh have a have a you know poison have a co2 poisoning if you go deeper and um 
So they were they were quite, you know, they were not very deep. So you could spot them from the surface. What they did, these divers, is they they would, you know, wrap like, you know, some cloth around the watch and they would just open open it to check to check the time or, <laughs> or something or check the direction on the compasses. But generally they were like they were actually almost dangerous for them because they would give away, give away their position. And you'd never know this unless you actually spoke with the people that were using it and doing it. You'd, you'd never know it. And that's the beauty of interviewing some of these people because you learn these stories, you're like, I never would have guessed that. Absolutely. These have, yeah. been, these have been fantastic stories, Jose. One last question or series of questions that we have time for. You've learned all these skills over the years, looking at watches, trying to determine which ones have been doctored, which ones may not be what they appear. Are there any basic skills that you can give people that are looking on eBay, on Chrono24, on an auction, looking at something and trying to say, especially those things that look too good to be true, you know what I mean? What are some common things to look out for or suggestions or just overall tips on how to be a good consumer of pre-owned watches, especially if you're looking at something that's you know, a little bit older than, than modern and you're trying to determine if it's worth investing in or buying? Yeah, I think one of the most important tools is uh, just try to compare it with uh, with other similar similar pieces uh, that you can find. I mean, you know, the the best way to do it is just to to Google and and try to find not one, uh, but maybe like you know like three or four examples uh, that are similar, and then you you just compare them and 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 try to figure out whether the watch you are actually interested in, you know matches is it is it dangerous if the watch that you're looking at there's only that, that's it those are the only pictures on the internet because sometimes i've done that where there's nothing else to compare it to i tend to be highly suspicious in that situation well i mean you know you can uh, it's you know how skills i mean you know this is something that comes with time the more watches you look at the more you you get a feeling for you know what is right and what is not let's say like you know you 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 you, you understand whether a patina is is you know is, is natural or whether it was you know done artificially um you know the, the same applies with hands you know like if, if if you have for instance like original hands you will always see like like a, a little frame around the loom where it actually touches touches the metal right it's like it's like some some slightly darker area there and and if you don't see that, and if, if for okay. instance the, the the loom is like you know really in skeletonized hands, for instance, like it's it's really like flat, uh, you know, flat in, in one uh, you know flat with the with the with the metallic with the with the with the surface of the hand, like flush, 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 man. exactly. If it's flush, then it's most certainly not an original uh, uh, loom because the original loom was applied from the back. So there's always like a certain height, you know. That, oh, I see. I so, see. Interesting. So these are all details that you, you know, you learn over time. The more watches you look at, the more you you actually understand what is what is correct and what is not. So are auction houses really the places to look out for this or have this sort of unscrupulous people gone elsewhere. I just sort of want to know how big of a problem are these fake histories or uh, watches, you know, watches that are, are, you know, doctored, that are connected to real histories. There's so many permutations of these 
watches aren't what they said to be. But how, but how dangerous are they? Or is this really something that sort of comes up, you know, sort of like fine art in the, in the very expensive world of auctions where the stakes are very, very high? I think that this the 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 tendency right now is you know there's there's a there's a few people who who do similar work like I do uh, with other brands and the more people actually who um, make you know make this this type of work and and share their knowledge with with uh, with fellow collectors and then watch enthusiasts I think the more the the whole market will become cleaner because uh, you know I mean auction houses don't want to to go through you know, being exposed and, you know, this is, is also a very difficult process internally for them because basically when they accept the watch, they, they you know, they, it's, it's, it's like some, some kind of a deal with, with the consigner, right? So they basically guarantee something or whatever. So there's, there's a contract, right? And if, if the watch turns out to be, to be uh, you know, not, not, not okay, but they accepted it already, there's, there's a process they have to go through. And in most cases, it's very difficult to actually for them to to give the watch back to the consigner. In many cases, they will just sit on the watch, and that's uh, you know like a, a complete loss for them, right? So I think absolutely the more people do you know this kind of this kind of work and and share their knowledge with uh, with interested parties, the the more you know the more you know dealers and auction houses will will understand that they have to, you know, that they have to. It's a, yeah, it's a game of cat and mouse. You know, it's always about who's who's going to be ahead. Is it the people that are looking out for the funny business or is it the people inventing the funny business? I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a normal reaction. What are you working on next? What are some of the mysteries that you're trying to unsol- sort of unravel right now? Yeah, so I don't know if you if you read my latest article about the the Rolex Itonas with the mystery cross on the back. Um, that was the one. Yeah, the mystery. I was looking at that. Is that the one that has the the, the kind of rope around it? Exactly. So that was a mystery for like you know, like, let's say when the first watch was found, maybe like twenty five years ago, and you know, uh, nobody could figure out what this what this what these engravings were all about, and I found it, you know. Per chance, I, I was studying. You know, I was studying pictures from uh, from uh, um, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary's and uh, uh, Tenzing Norgay's um, first ascent to Mount Everest in 1953. When all of a sudden I saw this this cylindric container that had exactly that graphic <laughs> on it. Yeah, and, and yeah, then there I, it is. And then I started like looking into it, and and I came to realize that it was those those were like you know like stuff that was uh, left left up there by the by the earlier Swiss expedition. So this was really an amazing an amazing find. So right now I'm 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 really working on uh, on on this whole controversy about did Rolex really reach. The summit in 1953, or or you know, or was all just a marketing exaggeration? So yeah, I'm looking into that now. And that's interesting because you you have access to these photographs, and these photographs sometimes tell a different story than the one that is said in the marketing materials or the histories and things like that. And there was this engraving on the back of certain watches that nobody knew what it was, and then there it is. It seems to be a logo. Of the expedition itself. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, the, the watches are most certainly uh, like uh, you know commemorative pieces for the 
for the participants of the 1952 expedition like you know because they were they were also like the the production date is uh, late 1971 so it yeah. it seems to fit that that picture i also reached out to the to the uh, uh, foundation for alpine research in switzerland who are actually were the owner of that logo and um, you know after so many years i mean that's like 50 years right the the current secretary doesn't doesn't know what happened back then but he he actually came up you know with with the idea hey, maybe it's it's some commemorative piece and that's just interesting yeah yeah it is very interesting my guest has been jose perez troika you can go to his instagram account perezscope or his website perezscope.com he is a a watch lover and a savant at all things uh, forensic and visual and wonderful stuff to read on his website, especially if you really want to know what what uh, <laughs> what really gets serious watch enthusiasts, um, you know, ki kicking and ticking every single day. Jose, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? <laughs> 